Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 203. In this episode, we're introducing our series on trauma and providing an introduction to trauma with Reverend Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Dr. Chuck DeGroat is professor of pastoral care at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and also the author of books like When Narcissism Comes to Church. Team members on this episode include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Reverend Dr. Christopher Porter, Dr. Sidney Tooth, Dr. Logan Williams, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. In this conversation, we'll be introducing a new series on trauma. We have an opportunity today to have Dr. Chuck DeGroat kick us off. Um, And I want to note that in our show notes, we're going to have some content warnings throughout this series. So in case you're worried that a series on trauma might be difficult for you, please be sure to check that out. So team members, what did you find interesting in this conversation with Chuck? I really appreciated the way that Chuck defined trauma as not something that happens to you. It's something that happens within you in response in a certain context um, of something happening to you. And he will uh, expand on that a bit more. But I've, I thought that was a very helpful way of reframing how people think about uh, trauma. Yeah, I think like Logan, I think the definitions were so helpful, especially as we start out this series on trauma. For just thinking about what um, trauma is and, and how it um, affects people differently as well. And I really appreciated Chuck's emphasis on each person's own story um, and um, needing to get to that and get behind that um, as as you start doing that internal work. Um, so that was a really helpful part of the discussion. I really appreciate in this conversation the way that Chuck uh, thinks through trauma from the the counseling space and from the through that lens of not just an analysis of trauma, but helping people work through their trauma and uh, indeed work into their trauma to be able to understand it better and to be able to understand the the mechanisms by which it affects them and the, and that they are responding to it. Yeah, this was a great way to kick off our series as we're going to talk about various sources of trauma. One of the things in this conversation with Dr. DeGroat that I appreciated was thinking about how different people process and handle uh, trauma differently. And just in general, the nuance that he provided to this conversation to kind of set us up for a variegated uh, and, and uh, multifaceted conversation o- over the next several episodes. Yeah. And similarly, um, I think he really advocated for a distinctive approach for each person in counseling. And I think that's really helpful and probably gives our listeners some really good advice. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Reverend Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and telling us how you got into a sort of study of trauma. Yeah. So I have been, I've worn lots of different hats. I have been a pastor in Orlando and San Francisco, uh, seminary prof, author, therapist. Um, So I've gotten to do lots of 
lots of really cool and interesting things. Um, started a couple of church-based counseling centers in Orlando and San Francisco. And so uh, with that, with my work as a pastor slash therapist, I've, I've just worked with a range of, of people. And when I was trained in the mid-90s, we, we really weren't talking about trauma in the ways that we're talking about trauma today. Uh, we would talk about PTSD, uh, and that would be that would be uh, be war veterans or people who had been through horrific natural disasters and things like that. Um, the conversation has shifted, as you all know. We're talking uh, a lot more about trauma. Some people are frustrated about that. Everything is trauma nowadays. You know, I dropped my phone in the toilet, and it's a trauma. Um, and so there's some there's some anxiety even about this conversation, but. Uh, what we're actually talking about today goes back to conversations uh, in the early 90s by by uh, psychologists like Judith Herman and others who are beginning to name the um, the spectrum of trauma, the ubiquity of trauma. Um, and and so uh, but but it's really well, it's for me, it's been interesting because I had to catch up. Like I wasn't trained in this in ways that others are now being trained in it. I was trained to do story work. And now we know we might get into this uh, during our time together today. Uh, the kind of story work I was trained to do might actually be more traumatizing in some ways as you lead people into their lives, as you invite them and ask them to tell parts of their story without uh, setting them up and creating the conditions for a healthy and safe conversation. And so um, I, uh, I'm now in my, what, 25th year or so of being an ordained minister and a therapist. And I, in some ways, I feel like I have more questions and answers nowadays. It's maybe today's conversation will be reflective of that, but I've had to do a lot of catching up, um, in, in my own work and practice. Thank you so much, Chuck. That was so helpful. And it, it's good to get a glimpse of where you've been. I wonder if, um, you could give us an intro to trauma. We've already started to use that word a lot, but could you define it for us and then maybe give us an idea of um, some helpful parameters for talking about trauma? Yeah, so when we talk about trauma, well, you all are Greek scholars, right? Um, you know that uh, as we sort of look at the root of the word, um, it's wound, right? There's, we're talking about kind of wound, uh, um a wound to the soul, a wound to the body, a wound to the spirit, a kind of wound that we need to tend to. And I find it helpful to uh, to, to sort of think about it uh, through the lens of, of something that Gabor Mate says. Gabor Mate is a Vancouver-based physician uh, who says trauma, and this is my, my uh, translation of what he says, trauma is not what happens to you, but what happens within you in the absence of a compassionate witness. So trauma is not the thing that happens. Lots of things happen to us. Trauma is the wound that is left behind within us. Um, and, and so we distinguish between abuse, the abuse that happened to us, and the imprint of that abuse within us, within our body, within our emotions. And so trauma is, uh, uh, when we talk about trauma, we're, we're really trying to attune to and attend to um, that residual wound within us, within our emotions, within our thoughts, within our bodies, um, and that's that's kind of like the base level. Uh, when we do talk about trauma, we will often talk about big T trauma. Um, and when we talk about big tr T trauma, we're often talking about it through the lens of 
those larger things that happen to us and the wound that it uh, leaves within us. But we often also talk about little t trauma and the, the, the little t trauma um, really gets at how our needs are not met, um, how we are wounded in and through um, the absence of, of caregivers, um, uh, neglect of our emotional needs. Um, and so uh, by, by those kinds of definitions, it's, it's a pretty wide ranging way of understanding trauma today, as opposed to where I was 25 years ago when I, I saw it purely through the lens of PTSD. Uh, now we might be able to rightly say that each one of us has experienced uh, trauma of some kind in our lives. Um, but the last part of that that uh, that definition from Gaber Mate is pretty important. Trauma is not what happens to you, but what happens within you in the absence of a compassionate witness. Because one of the things that we know about trauma is that we suffer more when we suffer alone. Um, two people who go through a natural disaster. Uh, one may be held by family and friends after it and uh, suffer the effects of stress, but not trauma. The other may suffer alone, without support, without care, and um, that stress may become trauma. Um, and there's more we can talk about. I'll kind of leave it there and see how, what you want to tease out, what thread you want to pull on. Chuck, thank you so much. That is just really helpful for thinking about almost, I guess, a spectrum of trauma and and thinking about how that impacts people differently and it looks different. And I think that accounts for some of the confusion around trauma as well. So that's really helpful. Um, I, something I was struck by when you were talking there is about trauma being what happens within us. And um, how do you think a helpful way then in speaking about other people's actions in relation to trauma, how would you go about doing that? Because I think some people would think, oh, this person traumatized me or I've yeah. been traumatized by this or, and it, how have you um, yeah. dealt with that sort of thinking through how to speak about that well or define yeah. it well? So I find it helpful to hold both intentions. So I, you know, I want to name very clearly um, what has happened to the person, you know, if we want to call it abuse, if we want to call it neglect, um, whatever we want to call it, I want to name those th things very clearly. And I don't want to minimize at all what happened to us. Right. Um, and, and oftentimes with that, there's a need for some sort of justice. You know, um, I, I want that, uh, you know, I want, I want my abuser to be held accountable. There's that kind of part of the conversation. I do think that naming uh, the imprint of trauma then takes us to uh, a different level of self-responsibility. In other words, it invites us to do our own work. And that part of it is really important because I, I don't think that we heal by simply naming who harmed us or maybe uh, receiving the kind of justice that we think we need to receive you know, externally from the outside, right? I think we need to do the work of attending to what is the particular imprint of trauma on my being now that, you know, as a result of what happened to me, I'm experiencing um, panic attacks. Uh, every time I walk into a room um, where there's someone who looks like that or talks like that, I, I find myself triggered. Um, uh, ever since that thing happened to me, I haven't been able to sleep at night, things like that, right? Where now we have to pay attention to this specific sort of emotional imprints, um, um, cognitive imprints, uh, somatic imprints, 
Uh, and that that takes some work and that takes some self-responsibility, right? And it, it's the tension that every therapist encounters sort of doing that dance with a client um, because there are sessions where we're, we're simply talking about the thing that happened to you. I know for my own healing, uh, uh, back when I think about uh, my therapeutic journey that began in about 2008, 2009, uh, I got with a therapist and I remember walking into his office and saying, I want to talk about this person. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about my former senior pastor that hurt me. And um, he said, I suspect that you've talked about those folks for a long time. And he was right. I've been talking uh, about them for about five years in therapy. He said, it's time for you to turn inward. And that was a really important point in my own therapeutic journey to actually begin to talk about the imprint of trauma within me. That's really helpful. And I think it I think it picks up on something you mentioned at the beginning as well, of this idea that some people have of, oh, there's just trauma everywhere. Everything is trauma. Whereas it seems like when you actually reframe it as that inward work and, and how you're responding, there's a very different focus that then takes place with yeah. that sort of framing of it. Yeah. On that note, we you you've noted uh, in your uh, in your kind of opening um, opening comments that um, some people get frustrated that trauma is a word that's used kind of like willy nilly now. Everything is yeah. trauma. I drop my phone in the toilet. It's trauma. Trauma. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's a spectrum of like, you know, negative inter- negative experiences or difficult experiences impact us. You know, mm-hmm. it's not as if like some impact us only for five seconds and others impact us for 40 years. Um, there's probably some kind of spectrum here. But where do we kind of or where do you think or where where should one draw the line between like an adverse experience that has like an effect, but is not necessarily traumatic and like you know, an adverse experience that has a traumatic effect. Now, obviously, like the, yeah. the may be the same. It depends on the responses and the circumstances. That's right. Right. Then, but what like, how do we actually tease out like or is there is it it's just like kind of this big spectrum? There's no real line where something. Becomes yeah. Yeah. Like, like what? Where do we draw the lines here? Yeah. Yeah. I think one helpful way of talking about the spectrum, if there is one, uh, is to to talk about it in terms of connection and disconnection. Um, as a spectrum. And I think when people experience trauma, they're taking they're taken out of the present moment. Uh, oftentimes, the more significant the trauma, the more uh, self-alienated one is, the more disconnected from the present moment, the, one, the more one is unable to sort of live in the contingencies of the present moment, right? And they end up being more self-protective or um, or uh, they end up avoiding or numbing through substances or self different forms of self-soothing, right? And so, um, and you can, can extend that spectrum. I mean, I've done work with people who, uh, the old term for it was multiple personality disorder. Now we call it dissociative identi- identity disorder. I've done work with people uh, with, where I've I've been working with their alters, right? Um, and and their their way of coping was to sort of psychically split. It wasn't something they decided to do one day. It was just a way that their brains and bodies uh, coped. And so what's interesting about that is that um, I, I was doing some work with a guy this past week. I do these five-day, three-hour-day intensives uh, with a, a man, a pastor, who um, thought that he was dealing with some trauma. What we realized was that he was actually far more resilient than than he imagined. He'd done some good work. He'd experienced some pain, uh, 
some external stress, uh, uh, some difficult challenges. But by and large, he was oriented to the present. Uh, he he was able to resource himself well when um, when he did feel a little bit of activation. And he came out of it feeling like, oh, so I, I'm not really, I think I'm stressed, I'm taxed, but I, I don't know that I'm going to continue to say I'm traumatized. And so I, I think it's important for for those of us who do the work to be able to sit with people and do some uh, diagnostic work, you know, versus uh, what what you and I hear more popularly. Like I, I said earlier, I dropped my phone in the toilet. I'm so traumatized. I mean, I think it takes some teasing out of one story and one's orientation to the present moment toward reality uh, in these circumstances. So I'm uh, very curious about how we process and handle trauma differently uh, as as people. And I know in your work on narcissism, you have kind of uh, refracted that through the Enneagram and thought about how narcissistic tendencies uh, appear in different personality types within the Enneagram. And we're all uh, big fans of the Enneagram here. And I'm curious if maybe you have any insights for us as to how um, trauma is processed or handled by different personality types, different uh, types within the uh, Enneagram, and if there's anything um, helpful to reflect on there. Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I personally invited the Enneagram into my life in the late 1990s, um, developed a personal relationship with with Enneagram and kidding. Um uh, I've been working with the Enneagram for a long time. And, and um, what's interesting is I didn't connect it at all to narcissism, trauma, personality disorders, any of those uh, kinds of things early on. Um, uh, uh, eventually, eventually, I found the work of some early Enneagram uh, um, practitioners who made some of those connections. And I realized, oh, there's a lot here that can name uh, the way we tend toward different personality disorders. And so uh, very early on, even back into the early 2000s, I realized that certain, maybe I won't say them out loud right now because that might send us off on a rabbit trail, but certain Enneagram types may have a proclivity to borderline personality or narcissistic personality or avoidant personality, et cetera. You could probably fill in the blanks there yourself. But uh, you know what we know about the Enneagram is, uh, to some degree, there's some mystery around whether it's nature or nurture and some combination of both. I happen to think it's probably some mysterious combination of both. And that by and large, it's it's not about some, you know, inherited personality as much as it is a, a way of a self, self-protective way of, of coping and adapting in the world, right? And so those adaptations tell us a lot. Right. And, and it, they make me curious about, well, wh- why have you had to adapt in that particular way? And so doing some work with a pastor this w- week who um, uh, we both think is an Enneagram 2 and tends to be very, very helpful. We learned a lot about his story as we became curious about where that pattern of adapting to being helpful in all of his relationships, coming through for people in relationships, where that began. Um, and where where that story uh, started with him of, of I've always got to be responsible, I've always got to come through, I've always got to meet other people's needs, right? Um, that by the way, um, that doesn't necessarily kind of draw a straight line to some reality that someone's traumatized, right? Um, but oftentimes, when we exercise a little bit of curiosity and we do a little bit of digging, we realize that there may be a story of some abuse or neglect that was internalized as trauma. Um, 
I don't assume that with the Enneagram, but it does make me curious, particularly when I'm working with people who um, aren't very self-aware and where these their Enneagram um, habits have been, become pretty fixed, right? Uh, so with narcissism, for instance, uh, there, there's almost always a story of of abuse. Um, and, and I've been doing this work for a long, long time. When I get back behind there, particularly when I work with men, um, there's some sort of story of, of I was hurt, I was harmed, and I didn't intend to do this, but what happened was a wall went up and I've been living behind this wall, throwing bombs from behind this wall for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And for us to deal with the narcissism, we have to get back behind that wall and deal with the pain um, and the imprint of trauma, right? And um, I would see the narcissism as a self-protective way of of keeping that person. Um, he thinks he thinks it's going to keep him from experiencing more pain, but it actually uh, it actually is a form of self sabotage, and he experiences more pain and more trauma as a result. Thanks, Jack. Um- I was wondering, can you talk a bit more then about that that pattern of uh, w- the pattern with trauma of, of self sabotage and, and moving back into the trauma, yeah. um, and, and the, that trauma re- repetition cycle? Um, because I think that's that's one area that uh, when we talk about trauma, it's the thing that sets it apart. Yeah. So with every uh, with every experience of trauma, there are ways of coping, right? Um, and and so. Uh, tr- People who experience trauma are survivors. Um, and uh, one of the things that, by the way, unites us all on this call right now is that we have autonomic nervous systems, right? And um, our bodies um, automatically, autonomically respond um, in, in ways that uh, our body discerns will best protect us, right? So there are any number of forms of coping, forms of numbing, forms of avoiding, forms of, of self-soothing um, that are available to us that we may not even be aware of, you know, um, we may not even know that our, what, you know, watching 14 hours a week of Netflix is a form of self-soothing, you know? So that becomes a form of self-sabotage. Now, someone might, who's watching 14 hours of Netflix each week might just say, Hey, I just, I need to rest. I, I work hard and I need to rest after a long day. Um, but if it's a way of, of self-soothing in the midst of trauma, it's keeping, them from actually dealing with uh, how the trauma is impacting them, right? And so uh, oftentimes what gets people to counseling, by the way, is that form of coping and how it's disruptive to their lives, right? So it's my my too much drinking or it's my pornography usage or it's my, um, my uh, reactive anger or whatever it is, whatever form of coping it is actually gets us into the counseling office uh, what I worry about, and this is where the trauma conversation is so important, is that too often pastors and therapists deal at a purely behavioral level. Well, stop looking at Netflix, stop looking at pornography, stop drinking, stop. Um, it becomes very behavioral. Um, it sees the style of coping as the problem rather than the attempted solution to the problem, if that makes sense. And so I have, I have a very empathetic, very generous way of understanding people's coping mechanisms. It's it's simply a, a way of trying to uh, it's a salve for the pain, right? It's a it's a way of attempting to deal with the pain. I want to get really curious about like why the pain, what's back there, what's behind that. Perhaps to back up the conversation a little bit, uh, because we we've we've, uh, we've already touched on uh, this a little bit, but we you've mentioned you know the kind of uh, we know 
what is the site in which trauma happens you know it's uh it's adverse experience that happens to you but then it's the way that's internalized and experienced in the right. context um what physiologically and practically you know broadly speaking uh if uh, um if that's possible are the effects of that untreated wound and of course we've just you've just touched on some of those things uh but yeah. i guess kind of isolate just like once that occurs what then in the absence of treatment yeah uh, is it are the normal kind of paths that that happen you mentioned disassociation a couple yeah of connection a couple of things but right the itemize them might be helpful yeah no that's good um i like to sort of return to a baseline um uh, and you could talk about this in a variety of different ways. Um, because I'm because I'm uh, a Christian, I'm a seminary prof. I like to think about it biblically. I, I like to think about us being rooted and grounded, anchored uh, in love. Ephesians three. Um, I, I like to think of that as home. Um, Augustine says God is our homeland. We make our home in God. Augustine also says that we become externalized and invites us to return to ourselves, um, which is to say. If we return to God, we return to the um, the ground of our own being, and that's where we find ourselves present and connected and empathetic. I, I think about the work of Daniel Goleman um, around emotional intelligence, and he says an emotionally intelligent person is self-aware, is empathetic, is intrinsically motivated, um, is socially aware, right? So all of those things become a kind of baseline for me, um, that capacity to connect, that capacity to be present be empathetic. Um, as we're taken out, so to speak, because of trauma, uh, we lose connection to the present moment and um, we survive rather than thrive. We become reactive, right? Our autonomic nervous system sort of automatically um, uh, default to this place of survival. Um, we Our prefrontal cortex, which, which gets at our capacity to be present, be curious, goes offline and um, and we're sort of uh, guided by our anxious limbic systems, and and we operate in the world just trying to sort of um, survive in the world, just trying to sort of fend off danger, um, and that's a that's an exhausting way of of living, right? Uh, and I I think that the the remarkable thing about that, it, and some of you know this, I certainly know it from my own life, is we can survive there for a long time. It's amazing how good we can look operating out of our survival mechanisms um, in this kind of tra traumatized state, um, but with um, with parts of ourselves that are able to sort of uh, respond to the moment, um, uh, complete PhDs as I did in the midst of my own trauma, um, even get a good job, uh, preach sermons, um, uh, invite people to the table. I was doing all of these things smack dab in the middle of unaddressed trauma in my own life, right? And so it's remarkable. And by the way, that's not called resilience. <laughs> that's just um, me surviving in the world. And so uh, we've. this is where I, I, I would say we've got to go back and we've got to look at that underlying story. We've got to look at the imprint in our emotions and in our bodies um, in order to, to do the work of, of coming back to the present and healing. It, curious to me that you mentioned resilience. I, I just had a conversation today uh, with a friend of mine who was talking about the way that people attempt to empathize with her traumatic experiences. And uh, she said, you know, people always tell me like, gosh, you're you're so resilient. And uh, she said, you know what, I'm I'm 
I'm sick of having to be resilient. Like I, uh, that's actually like not a really helpful thing. People think they're being yeah. helpful when they say that they're actually not. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. wonder, I mean, have you, can you say more about just like the misuse of that concept in, in, in kind of like, if, if there's anything more to say about yeah. it really resonated with me. You said that I was like, Oh, I literally heard that a few hours ago. Yeah. Like, tell me about that a few hours ago. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I came out of a, um, a terribly painful church situation back in 2003 where I was fired. And, and um, yeah, I, I remember in the, in the hours, days, weeks, uh, months, years after, uh, just trying to survive, right? Get another job. Um, we have a young family. Uh, I want to take care of them. I want to make a living. Um, it was exhausting. And I remember people coming to me saying, wow, Chuck, you're just amazing. You've been through a, a lot of crap. And you're just so strong. There's such grit, you know, words like that, you know, and um, or you're so resilient. It's a misuse of the language of resilience. Um, that was just survivor me trying to keep my head above water and probably drowning at the same time. And, and when I look back to the, um, the, the somatic impact of that, I landed in a hospital in Cabo, Mexico in 2012. Uh, my system was septic and I had to have emergency gallbladder surgery and in Mexico, and you could you could draw kind of a direct line between what happened to me, you know, and my unaddressed trauma and how it came out in my body years later. And so, um, now resilience was um, the byproduct, the fruit of the work that I did after that, um, the fruit of taking seriously what had happened to me and its imprint within me, uh, right? Taking both seriously, um, beginning to do the work of. Um, and it came in lots of different ways. Um, the kinds of resources that are helpful to us come in lots of different packages and forms. And um, but my my oldest daughter now, who's 22, would say, "Dad, remember that season where for like five years you just meditate a lot, <laughs> you know?" And actually, what I was doing was a lot of contemplative prayer, a lot of meditative work, a lot of body work. And she said, "Yeah, before that, like you, you were so uh, you you were like so not present when you're in the room, and you're so anxious and." She's like, you're so different now. You're so mellow now. And um, what she's talking about, I, I, what she's speaking to her, that the fruits of a lot of work over the course of many years, which took me back into the present, which allowed me to come into a, um, a time like this, more present to you than I might have been 10 years ago, where, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, I would have been trying to figure out how am I going to survive this podcast over this next hour with these people, how, how do I need to show up? Yeah, I'd be kind of licking my finger and sticking my finger up in the air. What false self do I need to put on? How can I remain self-protected? What will they think of me? Um, how will I sound the most articulate? What if I make a mistake? All of those different kinds of things that my survivor self was most concerned about. I guess maybe on, on the point of resilience, I mean, uh, from what you said, it sounds like for someone to say like, oh, you're so resilient is a kind of like attempt to witness to trauma that actually is yeah. is not a witness no trauma. not an affirmation like you i you experienced a lot of pain like you know that that's a different thing from saying like oh you've you've handled that really well which actually they, they might yeah. not be doing it really well <laughs> i think it's it's um most people are just trying to say you're you're so tough um what doesn't kill you makes you stronger as my friend Andy colbert often says um um she didn't say it in that way, right? Like she's wrote a book called Strong Like Water based on that and how, what a terrible lie that is. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That you're tough, that you've gritted it out. 
And when we talk about resilience, what we're we're talking about really, and and um, I'll let uh, smarter people like Andy Culper talk about these kinds of things. But what we're talking about is when when we do the therapeutic work, we're expanding what we call our window of tolerance, which is to say that we're growing in our capacity to live in the present moment, in the midst of the stressors, without checking out, without coping in a way that uh, might be uh, harmful to our, to ourselves or. Um, self-soothing, self-regulating in a way that um, uh, that is is ultimately self-sabotaging. Uh, it's my capacity to live in the present with a sense of, oh, I'm I'm here right now, and it's okay to be here. And I may be a little anxious, but I'm showing up and I'm present. I'm not checking out right now. And then then you know, and I'm going to trust my therapist to tell me this. That then my therapist might say, "You're growing in resilience. I'm really proud of you." I think that's really helpful, Chuck. And I mean, I think one of the things that you were hinting at, but didn't say explicitly is it's also the case that the tendency, especially in North American work work culture to Mm -hmm. just kind of like push through and keep going and keep working is itself. It can be probably categorized as a number of different trauma responses, fight, flight, fawn, and, you know, depending on the motivation for that. Mm -hmm. And so to call someone resilient while they're still participating in that trauma response is actually, it actually makes it worse because it reinforces the idea that they should continue in the trauma response rather than processing the trauma. It's so good. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm learning things in my own works. (laughs) Yeah. And we all know it. We've all probably experienced people saying that to us and feel like, oh no, but that's, that's not true, but I guess that's who they want me to be. Um, so, I'll, I'll, and that's where I continued on 2007, eight, nine, finally got another job in ministry. And then I thought, well, now I better not screw it up. Now I better double down. I better be bigger, stronger, faster um, in my work as a pastor, you know, and and two years into my ministry in San Francisco, I was exhausted. Strange, because I was the guy starting um, a counseling center there I was a pastor who was talking a lot about emotional health and I had all this undealt with trauma. And so it just goes to show you that uh, you can even create a, a counseling false self, you know, that um, looks pretty wise and strong and healthy and, and is really underneath the, the waterline is really drowning. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate that. Um, and recognize that. We, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um I wonder, you've been talking about um, a, a number of different ways of addressing trauma. Um, some You've been talking about resourcing. You've been talking about things like body work. Yeah. Um, I, I know that the short answer is find a great therapist and, you know, get started. But I wonder if you could help us to understand a little bit more about what you would take to be the best approaches. You know, let's say someone that's listening to the podcast is like, oh, okay. I now realize that I have some significant trauma to work through. What Mm. what are the sorts of things that they should be looking for as they're trying to do this work? Yeah, so that is tough. And I think you you bring up the tension of it because it there isn't a one size fits all kind of way of addressing this, right? And and um I uh, we talked about Andy a couple of times. She'll often say, take what's helpful and leave behind what's not, right? Um I I uh I made the mistake years ago of of saying, well, things like let's just say contemplative prayer was really helpful to me. 
And so take 20 minutes to sit in silence and with God. Well, for some people who've been traumatized, taking 20 minutes to sit in silence, let alone two minutes to sit in silence, is even more traumatizing to them, right? And so this is where we need to do good diagnostic work. And and I I think uh, oftentimes those of us who do the work on the ground um, it's three steps forward. It's two steps back. You know, we are, we are saying, try this on for size, see if that'd be helpful. What might it be like for you to do a body scan, which is to say to, to sort of, um, do a meditative process of paying attention to your body from head to toe and sort of getting connected at, uh, to your body in a way that you might be disconnected right now. Well, wh- when I say something like that, I, I better know that that person is good and ready to be connected in that kind of way, and that there might not be some sort of significant activation if I tell them to do a body scan. So, yeah, that's where when we talk about resourcing, um, Madison, uh, it's uh, I want to listen very carefully before I start prescribing things. And people often just tell me what's something that would be helpful to me, Um, what what book to read, what uh, practice to engage. And um, I, I want to be really mindful of of uh, that I, I might recommend something that might be very counterproductive, that the very thing that helped me might be counterproductive to you. And I think that's really helpful because basically um, what you're, the response that you're offering to to my question about what are we looking for in a therapist is really a therapist that's going to help you to process your trauma in its own kind of individual way. Is, is Am I hearing you correctly, Chuck? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what's the unique imprint? And, and this is where, uh, by the way, comparison isn't helpful. <laughs> like um, I, I hear all the time, I don't even know why I'm here to see you. You know, I experience this tiny little thing where, whereas someone else experienced this really big thing, you know, comparison is not helpful because the unique imprint um, on you is very different than the unique imprint on me. And, and there are, by the way, other factors that we can throw into this. I, um, uh, years ago, I was exposed to the idea of highly sensitive children. And um, I read a book on that and I realized, oh, that explains a lot for me. If you are born um, uh, particularly sensitive, more highly sensitive than someone else, um, that little something that happened in your childhood that you know, your sibling experienced at the very same time may impact you um, uh, in in a way that's very different than your sibling. And uh, it's tough because then you get into the conversation. I mean, I my, my sibling is great. I love her. Um, she's a lot tougher than I am in some ways. She was an athlete. She was, and she'll say to me, and she's, she, she, she doesn't mean it in a harmful way, but she'll just say, oh, Chuck, you were sensitive back then. You know, mom said the same thing to me and it didn't affect me like it affected you. She means no harm when she says that. We work through those kinds of things. But the reality is I was sensitive. And uh, the reason why in kindergarten, in first grade, I would have these massive migraines that would take me out where I couldn't go to school two, three, four times a week. My body was screaming. Um, There was something going on there that... uh, my sister, for whatever reason, didn't experience in quite the same way, right? And so comparison isn't helpful. Um, the imprint is the imprint. And I, I want to be really curious about your story. Forget about anyone else's story. What's your story? So you, you've, you've talked then about stories and, and narratives are often um, 
given as one of the ways of being able to explore trauma and for people to mm-hmm. be able to work through trauma and to work and to work in that space. Um, and at the same time, often then the narratives that people tell uh, are the things that hold them in, in a trauma space. Um, that they 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 want to keep reliving that. Um, and and I, I think earlier you said you said things about play therapy. Um, I was wondering if you could just explore those areas. You know, so I guess demystifying the the counselling space. The counselling space is so foreign, and so I, I want. I think it'd be good for people to hear what it, what it looks like. Yeah, I would say um, the best therapists, as I said to Madison, are going to be in tune with what's going on with you and what's most helpful to you in the moment, and they will have um, a robust robust set of tools to draw from uh, in that work. Uh, so. For instance, as you're talking about narrative or story work, I was able to do a lot of story work um, uh, with the pastor I sat with over the last week because in many ways, um, the the imprint of trauma um, uh, 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 wasn't as significant as I thought going in. He was very oriented to the present and and um, he had a, a good understanding of his own story, of, of his own narrative. Now, now... The imprint that I've been talking about, that thing that happens within you as a result of what happens to you, um, that can take out the hippocampus, you know, the the part of our brain that um, processes the story. And and uh, so for some of us who've been through trauma, we don't have access to the story. What we have is when I walk into a room, uh, a, a large room, I am overcome by social anxiety. Uh, what I have is I can't sleep. What I have is uh, when I turn a corner and someone startles me, I'm taken out for the next two hours. Um, that's all we have. And so this is where more recently, and I'm talking about over the last 10 or 15 years, um, uh, there been this development of more embodied practices that allow you to um, offer you the resources to tend to um, those somatic kinds of symptoms that I was just naming um, now that that takes some time, and there are a number of different ways of getting at that. You probably heard of things like EMDR. Um, uh, EMDR is one way of, of sort of um, desensitizing um, the body or those symptoms, so that we can uh, uh, create a sense of safety, the conditions of safety, so that one can um, more appropriately and more safely tell their story. But here again. Come full circle. There are a variety of of different um, modalities available to us, um, therapeutic pathways available to us, uh, and I, I want to be really sensitive to what someone needs, and and, and also I want to be um, aware of my own limitations as a therapist. There are some who come in, uh, and this has been the case when I've worked with people with dis- disassociative identity disorder, where I know I'm in over my head at that point. I am I'm not equipped to deal with that level of dissociation. Um, but I can provide a good referral and get them the kind of care that they need. And so we need to know our limitations as therapists as well. And so if you have a therapist for your listeners who says, well, I learned this and this is the only way, you know, that, you know, whatever it is, you know, fill in the blank, whether it's biblical counseling or EMDR or internal family system, that this is the way um, I'd run for the hills um, because most of us think it it takes uh, some wisdom. 
uh, and some really good listening uh, to to be able to decide which pathway we need to take. And then for me as a therapist to to say, I might not be the right person for you, but someone else is here. So let's say somebody wants to learn more about just trauma, the research behind trauma, descriptions of responses, whatever, um, alongside, not in replacement of, or prior to, you know, seeking out a therapist, obviously books are not a substitute for therapy, but uh, what would you recommend as like, you know, uh, some resources, academic, non-academic trade or, you know, trade books or, or, or websites or whatever for people to just like get acquainted with this yeah. subject matter, whether they've been traumatized or not, or to try to figure out whether mm-hmm. they have been or whatever. Yeah. Well, actually, what you said is really important in, in this sense. Um, books may not be a substitute for therapy, but what um, trauma uh, therapists have found is that psychoeducation is really important. It's important for you to understand what's going on in your body and in your brain um, it's helpful to connect the dots. Uh, so if I'm sitting with someone who has a lot of what we call sympathetic activation, I, I call it storm. It's like you go into this sort of stormy internal place and and uh, you're in fight mode or flight mode or fawn. It's really help, helpful for them to understand that what's happening um, is a potentially a trauma response, right? That uh, may be connected to something that happened in their life. But what we need to do is we need to attune to what's happening right here and right now. We've got to avail ourselves of the resources to get you out of storm and back home again, um, to get you out of your sympathetic, you know, this hurricane that you find yourself swirling in and back home, rooted, grounded, anchored again. Um, and so that kind of psychoeducation um, is really important. Um, I, I really like the work of Janina Fisher, uh, who does that well. In fact, this little workbook, Transforming the Living Legacy of Trauma, is extraordinarily helpful. And um, and she gives you a lot of the categories uh, that, in a very simple introductory way, that, that will help you uh, sort of uh, put words to these inner experiences. Because think about it for a moment. This can be really scary. Like, I'm startled all the time. I'm panicked all the time. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I must just be broken. No, your body is just trying to survive. Uh, It's completely understandable. Your body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do right now. Your body is wise and it's adaptive. And together we can find a way to begin to shift your experience from this more anxious place to a more grounded place. Would you like to do that work with me? Right. And I I might be able to, uh, there, there's a work of uh, Andy Kolber, Kolber, who you'll have on this podcast, her work, Try Softer. Is uh, has been my go-to introductory book for the last probably five years since it came out. Um, Deb Dana uh, is not a Christian therapist, but her book Anchored uh, is a great introduction to what we call polyvagal theory um, and uh, really nuances the our understanding of of the uh, autonomic nervous system in ways that I find really really helpful today. And she offers lots of exercises. Um, there's an audible version of, of that book that your listeners could access and begin to uh, work through on their own. And, and my sense is that when people read, uh, these are really helpful authors. They're, um, they put words to these various experiences. But most of the time, if you begin to read a Trisofter, uh, Janina Fisher's work, Anchored, uh, you'll probably find your way to a therapist after a little while. You 
probably find yourself in a place where you're like, yeah, maybe a little over my head. This might not be uh, self-help work. I may need someone to walk alongside me in this. It's curious to me the the kind of stereotypical book on that people I always see recommend is The Body Keeps the Score. I noticed yeah. that you didn't recommend that. Was there a specific reason for that? Oh, no. You know, um, the, uh, there, there are some debates out there uh, about Bessel van der Kolk's history. Um, and and you, you can Google that to find out what those are. Uh, Janita Fisher, by the way, studied under Vanderkock and um, loves him, um, thinks he's credible and thinks he's done good work and he's misunderstood. The Body Keeps the Score, though, is a is a pretty technical book. Um, it's not the first book that I'd want to put in someone's hands. Um, I'd rather them uh, engage a more entry level book. Uh, Hillary McBride's The Wisdom of the Body. Uh, notice lots of these books have the body in the title, right? Um, I'll have a book coming out next year at this time called What Happens Within to kind of turn the conversation from what happened to you to what happens within you. Um, a lot of us are trying to offer accessible entry points into this conversation um, so that uh, we we might feel a little bit more sane. As one of the reasons I wrote the narcissism book was that people could feel maybe a little less crazy about their encounters with narcissistic abusers, right? And I think with some of these entry-level trauma books, uh, as we begin to understand our bodies, we feel a little less crazy, like, oh, there is a way to shift my experience from my constant reactive fight mode to a more rooted and grounded, present, and less reactive place? Yeah, there is. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Chuck. I think that's really important. And in some ways, that's a really good place for us to end up because you've given us some additional resources. And just for our listeners, I want to remind you that um, Chuck is simply kicking off a long conversation on trauma. And we're going to continue to hear from a lot of different people working on trauma theories and who are experts in various kinds of trauma, including, as Chuck noted, Andy Kolber. I think she's up next. Um, and we're really excited about that. So, Chuck, we just want to thank you again for your uh, time today. Yeah, thanks. Good to be with you all. <laughs> 